You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. So I want to invite you to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in the very first chapter. We're going to pick up about verse 10. And uh, Lord willing, we'll make it through the end of this chapter. So we have a lot of real estate to cover uh, this morning. Uh, But the church at Corinth, remember this. uh, Clint did a great job setting it up last week. It is only a few years old. It is a young church. It's only about 15 to 20 years since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this church reminds me, I read a story this week. It's like Roy Riggles. And I don't know if you know Roy Riggles. I didn't. Uh, You have to go all the way back to when men were men and football was football. (laughs) Leather helmets, uh, no face mask. Uh, But this is Roy Riggles. He was the captain of the 1929 uh, California Golden Bears. It's the Rose Bowl. And they're playing Georgia Tech. He is the captain of the team and he is the center. They have the ball on their opponent's 35-yard line, and a fumble happens. And of all people, Roy ends up with the ball. And in these days, rules were different. You could advance a fumble. Roy picks up the pigskin, and he starts running for the end zone. He makes it all the way to the 10-yard line. And one of his teammates, Benny Loom, grabs a hold of him, and he says... Uh, grabs a hold of him, Roy shakes him loose, and he says, this, this is my touchdown. He gets to the three-yard line, and Benny grabs a hold of him again, and this time he does not let go, and Roy stops. And he realizes that he has been running 62 yards in the wrong direction. Now, California ends up losing the game, but this moment haunted him forever because he was, from this point on, always known as wrong way Riggles. And the church of Corinth is a lot like Roy. They are going in the wrong direction. So this morning, we're going to pick up and we're going to see Paul for the very first time go to a real issue for the church. But he doesn't start there. He begins with the positive because he reminds them in verses 1 through 9 of who they are. And Clint talked last week about our identity and theirs. He talked about they are sanctified in Jesus. They had been called. They are to be saints together. Grace had been given to them. They've been enriched in Christ in all speech and knowledge. And he reminds them they are lacking no gifts. And he even said at the very end that God is faithful. So today Paul is going to address the very first issue. And for this church the list is long. Throughout this book, we see them abusing the Lord's Supper. They're getting into fights and suing one another. There's marital issues. There's sexual immorality. There's chaos in worship. There's incorrect teaching on the resurrection. And they're even misusing spiritual gifts. But all of that is not where Paul starts. He starts with another issue. And at first I read this and I thought, Paul, of all the things to choose from, why why did you start here? There's a list and it is long and there's some major problems with the church. But then I realized, I think it's because of this. The issue we're going to see today has to be addressed 
Because if not, all the others can't be dealt with properly. This issue that we're going to see today, it makes all the other ones even worse. And I believe it's an issue that even today, 2,000 years later, the church still faces this issue. It began from the beginning of the church. This church is only a couple of years old, and it's still an issue going on today. So let's pick up in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians. Notice how he begins. He says, I appeal to you. And notice he doesn't demand this from them. He is talking to them. He wants them to see their error. He wants them to understand. He wants them to realize what is going on. And then notice what he calls them. He calls them brothers. As wrong as they are and the list is long, I mean, Paul still sees them as family. He still wants the best for these people in this church. He doesn't want to give up on them. He wants the absolute best. Even though they are like Roy, headed in the wrong direction, he loves them and he cares about them. He says, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where he is wanting to drill down today. Because notice the very first issue that Paul brings with this church. He says that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. So the first issue isn't the Lord's Supper. It isn't misusing spiritual gifts. It isn't even sexual immorality. He begins with divisions and disunity. In fact, divisions and disunity in the church, it was and it still remains, I think, one of the greatest enemies of the testimony and the example that the church is supposed to be to the world. So notice what he does. He gives three appeals to them. He tells them three things. So the issue is divisions, disunity, but here's three things that he desires from them. He says, I want you to agree. And this word, it means to speak the same. It means be in harmony with one another rather than talking past people to offer mutual respect to one another. And then he says, be united in the same mind. He's calling to check and to see where Maybe their opinions need to be adjusted. He's encouraging them, urging them, appealing to them to find common ground. And then he says the same judgment. That the church is to be united in its purpose, to know what it is here for, to know who they are as believers. He wants them to focus on the same goal, be of same judgment. Even if you disagree on the means But we remind ourselves we're we're working to the same end. We all have the same goals. So he starts really general. Then he's going to get specific because somebody just went and tattled to Paul. Because look at verse 11. He said, it had been reported to me by Chloe's people, perhaps her family or, or people that were close to her, that there has been quarreling among you, my brothers. And notice again, he calls them brothers. He cares for them. He loves for them. So what is quarreling? Well, Mike must see a lot of this in this house with two little ones running around. It means this. It means not just disagreeing, but disagreeing in the way that you are dividing people. Your disagreements are putting wedges between people. They're fighting to win, and here's what they're doing. They're building their alliances. 
They're trying to find people and something happens. They want to gather people around them to hear their cause, to hear them out so that they will stand with them. But before we get into that, I'm just reminded even this week how even me, I can take something good and something meaningful, but because of my selfishness, my pride, my uh, insecurities, I can turn a good thing into a sinful thing. And that is what these people are doing because notice how messed up this is. Look at verse 12. What I mean, he says, is that each of you, one of you says, well, hey, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas or Peter. And I follow Christ. They are fighting, they're quarreling, and they're building their teams around who they're going to follow. They're fighting, bickering. These divisions are happening in the church because of the allegiances that they're seeing in the people. And notice the teams. Well, there's Paul, and I'd like to be on Paul's team. I mean, he's the founder of this church. He's the one that planted it. So perhaps there are people, you know, they're saying, man, I, I'm on team Paul. Then we got Apollos. He, he came alongside to help Paul. In fact, in Acts 18, he says that he helped greatly. He was an eloquent preacher from Alexandria, well-trained, a gifted expositor. The Greeks loved Apollos. Then was Peter, hey, one of the original 12. That'd be a great team to be on, great influence, especially among the Aramaic-speaking Jews. Do you see the divisions happening? Well, then the fourth one, and this one puzzled me. It said, Team Christ. I, I follow Christ. And I think, well, man, that'd be the team to be on, right? But notice Paul puts them in line with these others. I think Paul includes them for this reason. Probably this is a group saying, you know what? We don't need leaders. We don't need anyone. They're rejecting those that God has placed in leadership, and they're saying, all we need is Christ. And it seems absolutely ridiculous to me that these people are dividing and fighting over, hey, who's the best preacher? Who's the best leader? Hey, who baptized me? Who makes me feel more valued and important? And that is what they are dividing over. So then Paul cuts right to it in the next five verses. He asks them a question. He says, church, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Cripus and Gatius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then I love this. He says, oh, I did also baptize Stephanos and his household. But beyond that, I don't remember anyone else that I baptized. And I believe there were some people in that listening to this being read that go, wait, Paul baptized me. Does he not even remember that? But he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. But he sent me to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so Paul cuts right to the heart of the problems. He's going to peel back all the issues and reveal the source. So the reason there were divisions, the reason there was disunity, the reason there was quarreling and fighting, breaking up into alliances, is because they had forgotten the most central thing. They lost sight of what is most important. They'd forgotten the mind of Christ. They had stopped thinking like Jesus. And when that happened, everything began to fall apart. So let me pause and just kind of talk about a little bit of word of clarity here as I was studying this week. Because... 
You know, he says, be of the same mind, be of the same judgment, be all together. He's not saying that we have to agree on everything that goes on in the church. He's not saying that they should not have an opinion about this or how this should go. He's not saying you can't have different types and levels of relationships even in the church. Paul's not looking for uniformity. He's looking for harmony around what is most important. I know and he believes that you can have diversity, and I think there should be, but still maintain unity and harmony. And so for the rest of this chapter, here's what Paul's going to try to do for them and hopefully for us to bring them back to the mind of Christ. Because that's all that this rest of this chapter is about, that the mind of Christ is central, and we should see everything through it. In fact, it's the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. And what sets Christianity apart is the cross. In fact, the rest of this chapter is all about, Paul is going to take them back to the centrality of the cross because without it there is no Christianity. We are just wasting our time. So notice what Paul's going to do. He's going to show us five things about the cross. And here's the first one. He's going to say the cross it divides. I'm going to say, well that doesn't sound very good, but it actually is great news because look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, in the ancient world, everything was divided by class. You had the Romans, the barbarians, the Jews, the Gentiles, the slave, the free. But Paul says, no, no, no. There's actually only two groups that matter. There are those that are perishing, that are headed for destruction. And there are those that are being saved. No other divisions matters, he says. The thing that the cross does, it divides. But it's not, notice, it's not based on their background. It's not their social status. It's not money. It's not power. It's not how eloquent they speak. It's not who they know. The only thing that matters is the cross. In fact, the peace of God, acceptance with him, being in the presence of God, it isn't based on our performance at all. It's based on what we believe about the cross. The salvation for the lost, the spiritually dead people, they can come to life through a crucified and risen Savior. So the cross, the first thing we see is it divides from life, from death, from perishing to being saved. But here's the next thing it does. The cross humbles. So look at verse 19. It says, for it is written... He's quoting Jeremiah that I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, there is so much to unpack right here. For time's sake, I want to look at verse 21. Let me read that again. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, so God's wisdom, notice what he does. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God. It was God's plan that through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
So in God's wisdom, God planned, and what did he plan? That the world would never know him through wisdom. And this is so powerful for so many reasons. Because all of the world religions, they, at the base, at least on some level, they all have this in common. It's that you can come and you can know, you can understand, and it's all based on your ability and the wisdom that you have. But Christianity is different. That if God's plan was that he could be known through human wisdom, it means only those that had that ability could do that. But the amazing part for me is this, that I think deep down, at least I know, don't we really all want a God we can understand? That we all want a God that we can make total sense of. We want a God that acts and moves in a way that we desire and that we approve of. Ultimately, I think that's deep down what I would really want. Man, I really want a God I can really understand. I want a God that acts according to the way I want him to. But in God's ultimate wisdom, he doesn't give us what we want. Because the truth is, if we had a God we could fully understand, if we had a God that always made sense to us, if we had a God that acted and moved only in ways that we approve of, we would not have a God that could save. Because if we had the God that we wanted, we would actually not need God at all because we would be our own gods. So the cross humbles, or at least it should. Where's the next thing it does? The cross reveals, look at verse 22. He's going to go after and kind of focus on two groups here. He says, the Jews, and notice what they're doing. They're demanding signs. But the Greeks, they're seeking wisdom. But he says, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's folly. It's ridiculous to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So he takes these two groups. The Jews, man, we just want a sign. God, we want you to prove it. Just do something that I can see, and then I'll really know. Well, the Greeks, they're seeking wisdom. But I want to focus on these Jews for just a moment. Because I'm kind of thinking, well, what's so bad about that? I mean, we see examples in the Scripture where, uh, in the Old Testament, they're just, we're, we're kind of putting in, and we're laying something out there. Hey, God, if you're really you, let's just give me a sign. Prove it a little bit. But listen to what Chuck Swindoll says about this. He says, the Jews looked for a victorious warrior Messiah who would usher in God's kingdom by miraculously crushing the Roman Empire and restoring the Davidic kingdom. Instead, Jesus performed miracles among smaller groups of the disenfranchised, the despised, and the rejected. He preached a message of repentance and righteousness and peace. He called for self-sacrifice, surrender to the will of God, following in his steps, even to the cross, if necessary. He refused to perform miracles on demand. But it got me thinking, why was that? Why did he refuse? If they're asking for a sign, Jesus, give it to them. And then, man, then they'll believe. But I think the truth is that demanding a sign was doing something for them. Demanding a sign was putting them in control. They wanted a sign so they could evaluate Jesus, assess his claims, and 
test his credentials. They were actually the ones trying to judge Jesus. But Jesus isn't to be judged. He is to judge. But then I get to thinking about myself and even us today. Many of you ever thought, you know what? I'll devote myself to God if he does this. Or, you know, I'll really follow Jesus if I can just maintain this thing. I'll be happy to become a Christian if God just proves it to me. Or I'll turn my life around if God can just remove all doubt. In so many ways, I know I can be just like these Corinthians, assessing and judging Jesus. But the cross is a lot like a mirror. And what it does, it reflects what is truly in our hearts. And so it reminds us that the heart, the cross, it's going to reveal. But the fourth thing he says the cross does, it brings life. Because verse 26, he says, for consider your calling, brothers. He reminds them, he wants them to go back to the beginning. He wants them to think about where they were and who they were when God called them. Because here's who you were. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He says, don't you remember? You weren't wise according to the world. You weren't powerful. You weren't of noble birth or prestige or power. And then two of the most beautiful words in all the scriptures. But God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul says this is what God does, that Paul takes nobodies and he makes them somebodies. He makes them his and the reason God doesn't call based on how smart they were or dedicated they were or faithful they were or as influential as they be or successful or accomplished, none of those things. And the reason is so that no one can boast or stand or rely on anything other than him. Because nothing else matters, Paul is saying, except what we do with the cross. He says nothing else matters. Because the great news is the cross, what it does, it turns nobodies to somebodies. Only the cross can take sinful, selfish, prideful human beings and make them children of the king. Only the cross is the thing that can bring about perishing and dead people to life, eternal life. So he says the cross brings life. Well, Paul's last point of the cross is in verse 30. The cross He's reminding them, it is your only hope. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it, as it was written, let no one who boasts, let them boast in the Lord. So there's several things. There's about four things that he says that the cross does in bringing hope. Notice it brings us wisdom. What, how does the cross do that? It shows us who God really is. That through the cross, we can see him clearly. That he's a God that doesn't wait for people to find him. It shows us he's a God that comes and he seeks people out. 
The cross shows us he's a God that doesn't just sit above people hoping that they're going to figure this thing called life out. No, he became one of us. He's a God of unending sacrifice that would go to the greatest lengths to save wretched people by sending his son. He's a God that placed his son on the cross that was reserved for despised criminals. And then he poured out his wrath on the only one that didn't deserve it. So the cross shows us in wisdom of who God really is. Then he says righteousness. That God grants us the righteousness that we could never achieve on our own. Sanctification. That God doesn't just save us and, and hope for the best that we're going to figure this thing out. No, he achieves that for us. He has promised to sanctify us. And ultimately, redemption. That he will redeem us and the scripture says to present us blameless. So Paul begins with these Corinthian church and of all the issues he could have picked, he starts with this one of divisions and disunity. And I believe it's because all the other issues is going to make them worse and we can't deal with them if we're not unified. And he says, you're not unified because you have lost sight of what is most important. You have forgotten the centrality of the cross. I don't know about you, but for me, this is such a great warning and reminder that this is something the church still struggles with today. So I wrote myself some questions that I want to share with you. I wrote, I wrote myself and I said, Mark, where are you with the cross? Where are you with it? And I would ask you, where are you with the cross? Because the truth is clear that the cross is the only thing that can bring life. If you are still perishing and headed for destruction, you find your hope and salvation in the cross. And hopefully you've trusted in Jesus Christ. Here's the second question. I said, Mark, is Christ in the cross the center of the picture? Or his, is his image beginning to blur? Because I think we go through seasons and we can think back on that time. It just seemed like there was such a zeal and a, a passion for Christ and what he had done. And there was just this overwhelmingness of appreciation and a desire to do more and more for him. But has that faded away? Was there a time where you had such a joy in God you almost couldn't contain it? But you seemed to lose it over time. If so, my prayer would be to ask Christ to bring you back and to once again place him at the center of the picture that becomes clear. But my last question to myself was this. Mark, where's your focus? Where are your eyes? Is it on my things or my preferences, my circumstances, my desires, or even myself? So several days ago, God took me back to my childhood and there was a song that we would often sing and there was a phrase in this song and if you've been around church, maybe it's just been a long time since you've heard this. But it's old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And there's a phrase in there that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. 
and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so that's been my prayer even this week and early this morning. Lord, bring my eyes and focus back to the centrality of the cross. Help me to acknowledge and appreciate it like I once did. Bring back that joy that the cross can bring me. And so wherever you find yourself, I pray you would reach out to Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are thankful hopefully for so many things, even in the little things. Lord, I am thankful for your word that I can often neglect. Lord, I'm thankful that you have brought me to faith. You called me. Lord, I'm thankful that you have done absolutely everything necessary for me. And Lord, I stand on the promises that you will sanctify, you will redeem, that you will supply all that we need to follow you in this life as we prepare for the life to come. So Father, wherever we are today, Lord, I would pray that if there is someone that hasn't come to the cross, that they would even this morning, that they would seek forgiveness and salvation that can only come, not through achieving, not through doing, but simply trusting in uh, Jesus Christ for their salvation. Lord, for some of us, maybe it's just been a while and maybe we seem to have kind of lost that joy that we once had. Lord, would you bring us back to the foot of the cross to bring that picture back into view that the dimness would fade away and that your son would become clearer and clearer and that you would restore the joy of our salvation. So we are thankful for you this morning and how you have shared with us and you have led us. Lord, would you be with us this week that we could really put our eyes on the cross, that our love for you and our zeal for you and our desire to serve you would grow deeper and deeper. I ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Church, will you stand with me? I need to remind you of a couple of things. One, don't forget to go pick up your kids. Uh, then after we dismissed this morning, I was told we need to stack this side of the chairs uh, for the big life group kickoff that'll be here tonight at 6.30. Um, so if you would help us with that, just this section. For our benediction this morning, church, comes from the book of Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the slain but risen lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You are dismissed. Go in peace. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.